0: Well, I'm blessed to be here today. Are you? I'm already blessed. I'm good. But we're not done yet. So let's open the word of God together, shall we? Romans chapter six. We have arrived to this great arrived at this great chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you're trying to find your way in the New Testament. Romans chapter six. Titled this message, We Died to Sin, this is a, this will be a multi-parter, this is part one, and I found it fascinating this morning, I don't, I don't tell Tim what to read when, he, when it comes to the scripture reading, he just, we just have to pick the next book in the series in the Bible and, and find a passage there, I also don't tell him what to say, but it's amazing to me, just the spirit of God at work, because what he was talking about is exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning, and the weeks to come. So you'll see a lot of similarities there. Again, just the Spirit of God. We have reached another really significant point now in the book of Romans. And before we we jump into this, chapter 6, I just want to take a moment and go back. I want to just quickly review where we've been, talk a little bit about where we've been, and where we are now at this point or this part of Romans. This is a a letter. Okay, we refer to these as letters. It was a letter that was authored by a servant of Jesus Christ. That servant's name was Paul, the Apostle Paul. It was written to Gentile and Jewish Christians, and that becomes important as we work through the book. We've talked about this before, but in the ancient world, the world was primarily divided up between two people groups, Jews, and everyone who was not a Jew, Gentiles. So it was written to both, and Paul emphasizes that fact throughout the book and addresses Jews and Gentiles both in this book. They were Christians. They were those who had become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, those who, like Paul, were trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. I want to remind you also, I said this many, many months ago now, I think, that Romans is considered by many, by most even, to be one of the greatest books or letters of the New Testament. Some even say the entire Bible. And why do they say that? They say that because in Romans, it contains the gospel of God in its fullest. You know that gospel we sing about every morning? It's right here in all of its wonder and glory in the book of Romans. It is the most complete explanation of the good news. It is the news about how God has rescued sinners from their sin, of what God has done to save them not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin as well. One Bible scholar commenting on the book of Romans, and I I shared this with you Sometime before, but I want to share it to you, with you again. He puts it this way when he's describing the books, book of Romans. He says this: Its message is that human beings are born in sin and slavery, but that Jesus Christ came to set us free. For here is unfolded the good news of freedom—freedom. Freedom. What kind of freedom? Freedom from the holy wrath of God upon all ungodliness, our ungodliness. Freedom from alienation into reconciliation. Beloved, as sinners, we were alienated from God, separated from God, enemies of God. And through Christ, we have been reconciled to Him. We have become His friends, His very children. Freedom from the condemnation of God's law. Freedom from the fear of death. The Christian no longer has to fear death. For death will bring them right into the presence of their Lord and Savior. Freedom from ethnic conflict in the family of God. What is that about? Listen, we'll get to this later. There was an ethnic conflict among Jews and Gentiles. They had grown up hating one another, centuries of being enemies, despising one another. And now, in Christ, they were brought together. And you'll see in Romans how Paul will make these arguments that That uniting power of Christ should conquer all these other things that had previously separated them. Hey, look, that that still works with us. Look around you. We got people from every kind of background, every culture, race, right? Maybe not everyone, but multiple ones are represented here, right? How is it that we can come together and live together in harmony? How is that? It is through the power of Christ. And finally, freedom to give ourselves, freedom now to give ourselves to the loving service of God and others. That's what we have been free to do in Christ, okay? Now, this amazing letter that unfolds the gospel to us, it opens, now I'm just reviewing the outline, it opens with greetings and introduction from the Apostle Paul. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, then beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and continuing all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3, we have what you could call or label a section as condemnation. Condemnation. So we have introduction and greeting. Then Paul gives us condemnation. That is according to God's word. All of humanity, beloved, all of humanity is unrighteous before God. Do you remember this? Have we talked about this? Those of you have been with us? And therefore, because of that, all without exception, both Jew and Gentile, right? That would have been shocking to the Jews. They thought they were, many of them thought they were righteous before God. And Paul has news for them. No, no one, including you Jewish people, nobody is righteous before God. And because of that, all come under his condemnation. Listen, to be acceptable to a perfectly righteous God who thoroughly hates and despises sin, we need perfect righteousness. But sinners utterly lack it. And they cannot obtain it through any effort of their own. They can't earn it, and they can't make some sacrifice to get it. So consequently, all of humanity all of those outside of Christ, all of those not trusting in Christ are condemned before God. That's the first part of Romans. Then the next part of Romans, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, extending all the way to the end of chapter 5 that we just finished, you could title that entire section Justification. Justification. And I'm doing this for you because you you need to see where Paul is going in the book of Romans. You need to understand it. It has a purpose. When the sinner, what is justification? When the t- sinner turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and places their faith in Him, when they trust in Christ alone for their salvation, when they are united with Him, with Christ, placed into Christ through faith, at that very moment, beloved, they are permanently justified before God. Justified before God. They are at once At that time, declared and considered by God to be righteous in his eyes. They are freely given, listen, this is all review. They are freely given a righteous status by God that remains theirs for a few months until they blow it again forever, forever, And this happens not because of anything they have done or even will do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done on their behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. See, the the sinner obtains peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ because in Christ, beloved, the sinner is completely forgiven, right? Their guilt is entirely removed. And Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to them. That's justification. So the gospel of God, the true gospel, unlike all the other religions of the world, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. The gospel is not about us making ourselves right with God or doing something to earn or even try to contribute to our salvation. That is not the true gospel. That is a false gospel. That is a gospel of the religions of the world in one way or another. They try to do that. But rather, the true gospel is about us completely and continually trusting in what Jesus Christ has done, putting our confidence in what he alone, beloved, has accomplished on our behalf. That's the gospel. Now, you ready? We're at chapter 6. Beginning in chapter 6 and extending all the way through chapter 8, you have what you could call or label sanctification, sanctification. How many of you have heard that before? How many of you would be willing to come up here and just explain quickly to us what it is? Okay, excellent. Seeing you want to come on, I'm I'm not going to do that. Okay, so listen, it's important to understand the book. To understand the letter, condemnation. That's what Paul begins with. He gives us the bad news. The, The reason the good news is so good is because of the bad news. He gives us the bad news. He gives us, he begins to now give us the good news, justification. He begins to explain our salvation to us. And now we come to this place of sanctification. Now I said just a moment ago, if you were listening, I said that Christ not only saves us from the penalty of sin, glory to God and praise his name, but he also, beloved, listen, this is important, he saves us from the power of sin, the power of sin. He delivers or frees us from it. It's enslaving power. It's rule, it's reign. And progressively, this is a sanctification, progressively, over time, he saves us even from sin itself. Or the presence of it in our lives. And you could refer to that as sanctification. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, An Introduction in Biblical Doctrine, and I would, or to biblical doctrine, and I would encourage you uh, to consider such a resource. It's about this thick. And, and it uh, really lays out the, the great doctrines of the Bible. He defines sanctification like this. You could write this down or just listen because we're going to come back to it multiple times as we make our way through chapter 6, 7, and 8. Sanctification is a progressive, that means it's ongoing, progressive work of God and man, we'll talk about that, that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. That's a, there's more that could be said, but that's a decent definition of this idea of ongoing sanctification that we're going to be talking about here. And this progressive work of God and man, it's two-part. Man has a role to play in the fact that he cooperates with God in the work. Okay, some people got the wrong idea about sanctification. You've ever heard that phrase, let go and let God And sometimes what they mean by that, people define that differently, but sometimes they mean by that, if I just kind of sit around, God will just do his magic in me and I'll become more and more like Christ and sin will be more and more out of my life. I wish it did work like that, but that is not how it works. We cooperate with God in this process and through that, he transforms us into the image of his beloved and holy son, Jesus Christ. I also found this might be helpful to you, Wayne also does a comparison between justification and sanctification, because sometimes people get them confused. So I wanted to share that with you, too. I think this might be helpful. We'll come back to this as well. So pop that up. Let's see what that looks like. Okay, so on the left, we have justification. On the right, we have sanctification. Justification is more about our our standing before God. It's our position before, before God. It's a legal declaration. God declares us right with him. He gives us a righteous status. Beloved, we're not righteous. But through Christ, God is able to forgive our sins and declare us righteous by crediting to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a legal declaration. You are innocent. You are right before me. You understand? In sanctification, it's not a legal declaration so much when we're talking about this progressive process, but it's an internal condition. It's something that's going on in you, and what goes on in you has external results, but it's a condition. It's a process. Justification happens once for all time. You are justified the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and that never happens again. Sanctification, however, cont- it's continuous through life. It's continuous through life. In fact, it cont- it, the process begins at the moment you are saved and is not fully completed, beloved, until you go home to be with the Lord. At that point, the work that God has started in you, he will fully bring it about at that moment. Okay? These are important things. Because some have misunderstood sanctification. They actually have taught that you can be entirely changed perfectly into the image of Jesus Christ in this life so that you no longer sin. Perfectionism. That is not the teaching of the Bible. This is a process that begins at the moment of your salvation and continues all the way and is not fully and finally completed until you get a new glorified body, until you stand before Christ and you are made like Him perfectly. Okay, but don't miss the fact that it's happening now, because it would also be wrong to say that sanctification is just something that takes place in heaven. So what I do now really doesn't matter, and how I live doesn't matter. I'm saved. I'm justified. So uh, he'll fix me when I get there. No, he's the fixing starts now. Okay, justification third is entirely God's work. You don't have anything to do with that sanctification. You cooperate with God. You cooperate with the Holy Spirit that now dwells within you. You cooperate. Not always well. We'll get to that in a second. Justification is absolutely perfect in this life. You're not partially justified. You're not kind of justified. You're not 80% justified. You are declared absolutely right before God through Christ. However, sanctification is not perfect in this life, as I've been saying. And finally, justification is the same in all Christians. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean that Senia and I stand justified at the same. We're at the same when it comes to that. There, there's no difference in our justification before God. We're both relying on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His forgiveness. That's what justifies us. However, there could be. It could be true that Senia is more sanctified than me. How is that so? Because obviously she's a woman. <laughs> Mildred, you're welcome. <laughs> um, that's not exactly right, guys, but this process, if she's been at it longer, if she's been more cooperative with the Lord, then yes. It could be greater in her, her process of sanctification. Now, that doesn't give her a reason to go around boasting or anything like that. All she gets to say is, wow, look at the the grace of God in my life, and I've just been at it a little bit longer than you, Jeremy. You understand? Yes, because she's a little, (laughs) slightly older. Now, what did I want to say? There's there's a lot more I could say about this, certainly. We could talk more about justification, but I want to move on, but I do want to say something up front. By the way, i got to tell you right now, don't think we're getting through the outline or anything. We're not. <laughs> we're not. And, and that's intentional. I'll just, I, I set it up this way. It's not like I'm running out of time. I set it up this way. This is a very important point. In fact, next week, I'll send out an alert to tell anybody who missed, please listen to the today's message before we get to next week. This is very, this is a very, every chapter of Romans is important, but this is very critical for the health and holiness of the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm slowing it down. I want to say something else up front. I I think it's important that we really get this topic of sanctification. A lot of people will talk about justification or the, the ideas of justification. They may not use that word, but they talk about it. But sanctification is just as important. And we'll see that as we continue to make our way through Romans. But here's an idea I want you to understand. Justification cannot exist apart from sanctification. It cannot. It does not. They are linked together by an unbreakable chain. Don't forget that, beloved. You may not understand everything I just said. Just remember this part. Sanctification and justification are always together, they are not separate. They both belong to and are part of the gospel of God. They both have and play a significant role in the salvation and life and practice of the Christian. So by that I mean, if a person is truly a Christian, then you can expect, if they have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that based on the gospel as Paul explains it, okay? Now listen, are there other gospels? There are other gospels. Paul refers to them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He calls them false gospels, distortions of the truth. Turn on your television on any given morning and begin to watch some of the preaching and presentation of the gospel. And many times it will have parts of it that are true, but they introduce heresy, or lies, or deception, or whatever, falsities. And they are distorted gospels. So a gospel that says that sanctification is not necessarily part of justification, I'm going to say, is a false gospel. So based on the gospel that Paul explains, for the true believer in Jesus Christ, the one that has been justified, their lives will, listen, over time, become more and more free from sin and like Christ. And I'm bringing this up because, unfortunately, some have taught, and some of you have been exposed to, or you will be, not from this pulpit, but maybe another, that a person can be saved This is the nonsense, that a person can be saved, and while it isn't the best, they say, they could go on living just like they did before without any real change in their life. No real reduction in sin, no increase in righteousness, no evidence of holiness, as Tim was talking about this morning not looking anything like Christ, not resembling Him at all in their actions and their behavior. Beloved, I want to tell you, that is simply not the teaching of the Bible. It's not. If a person claims they have been a Christian for many years... But their life resembles the devil more than it does Christ. Then they have every reason to question whether they were ever really saved at all. You understand what I'm saying? They have every reason. Sanctification, now let me add this. Sanctification doesn't lead to sinless perfection in this life. Remember? Remember? Remember I already said that? It doesn't lead to that. But it does lead to a life, to one degree or another, that is less polluted by sin. Think of it that way. Less polluted by sin. Right? Think about L.A. before they started all these... Well, I don't know. If you, if you were there, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. But the smog level, the pollution level, right? And then they begin to incorporate all these things with... Uh, cars and so on and so forth. I don't know why I'm having a brain fade here, but you know, exhaust systems and stuff like that. They begin to clean up the, the pollution, right? And, and did, you see the, did you see what happened? Right? So the air becomes a little bit cleaner, the sky's a little bit bluer, right? That's the work of sanctification in the Christian. The pollution of sin begins to clear up. Not a perfect, brilliant day. Not in this life. But certainly I can see a little blue sky now. So to one degree or another, for the Christian, there is le- they are thus polluted by sin and there is a manifestation of the righteousness of Christ. Not their own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit of God living inside of them. So even when that's going on, even when you see this process of sanctification, that's why I say, you can't take credit for You can't say, woo, I'm so awesome. You say, God is so awesome. Look at him working through me and what he's producing in my life, holiness. So we still give glory to God, just like we do for justification. We give it to him for sanctification. He always gets all the glory. Just remember that. Anytime you're giving yourself glory, your thinking's messed up. You're messed up. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) And we all get messed up. One writer puts it this way, all that I'm trying to say, holiness starts, listen, holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. Do You understand that? You understand what I'm saying to you? Now listen, one more thought before we look at the text. And I'm I'm just, again, I'm taking it slow. I'm taking it slow because this is so important and so lacking, I think, especially in the church in America. I can only speak to that church because I'm really not familiar with the churches outside of America, not to the degree I am with the one in this that exists here. Uh, There is a holiness gap in the church in America. One more thought. Sin not only condemns people before God, but sin, beloved, also wreaks havoc in people's life, lives. Do you know that already? Do I have to tell you that? That sin wreaks havoc in, people, wreaks havoc in people's lives? Do, I, do, I need, do you know what I'm talking about? It, it not only hurts those who sin, but it hurts those around them, right? It brings a lot of collateral damage. Sin, beloved, Sin is what messes up relationships. It's it's not so much information like, oh, they just don't have enough information. If they had more information, then they'd have a better relationship. No, primarily it's sin. What they need information about is that the problem is sin. (laughs) That's the information they need. It injures and breaks up friendships. Families marriages, churches. It is sin that causes innumerable amounts and various kinds of suffering, pain, and misery for humanity, beloved. And sin might promise, and it often does, happiness or satisfaction, but you know what? It never delivers. It never delivers. It can't. It lies. It deceives. And it leaves you entirely unsatisfied, empty, and its ultimate goal is only to ruin you. Just an example, internet pornography. Pornography, period, but now it's prolific. It's everywhere, spread through our entire world, through access to the internet. And it promises satisfaction. Otherwise, why would you do it? but it destroys one marriage after another. And it ruins the many of men. It ruins them. It rips their soul out. It darkens it. Now, beloved, does it seem rational? Okay? Does it make any sense to you to think that God... The one who hates sin more than anyone. He hates it more than anyone. And he knows better than everyone the dreadful consequences of it, okay? Do you think it makes sense that he would save people from the penalty of sin? Save them from his condemnation. Save them from his wrath against sin. But then leave them under the power of sin. Leave them still enslaved to it so that they couldn't escape it, so that their lives would be increasingly polluted by it and they would be ruined by this horrible master called sin. Do you think God would do that? Is it plausible that God would, wouldn't have done something to rescue humanity from the power of sin as well? Do you think he'd only go halfway in our salvation? I'll save them from the penalty, but the power? Eh, we'll deal with that later when they get to heaven. You think that's what God did? You know how much God hates sin? He knows how much it ruins his people? No. Beloved, those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Period. Okay? Through Christ, God releases us. He frees us from the reign and rule of sin, and he lovingly and persistently works in us and with us through his spirit and his word. If you're wondering how he does this, This is why the Word of God is so important, so central in the Christian's life. This is why we spend 50 minutes, an hour, an hour and ten, every week, on this Word. This is why. We read it. We sing about it. We preach it. We meditate on it. We memorize it. We read the entire Bible through. This is why. It is the instrument that God uses with His Spirit to change us, to progressively free us from sin in our daily lives. He, in His grace, beloved, enables, empowers, and motivates us to truly live for Him. What does that mean? To say no to sin and yes to righteousness. How do I know what righteousness is? Right? All Scripture, right? Inspired by God, breathed out by God for what? What? One of those things, training in righteousness. Paul says in Titus 2.14, write that down, look at it later, Christ gave himself to make sure that we don't go to hell. Well, that's the penalty of sin. He certainly delivered us from that. But listen to this, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Titus 2.14 it's the word of God, and to purify for himself uh, people for his own possession that are zealous, crazy about good works. Good works. You mean like helping an old lady across the street? Okay, that could be included in that. Good works, doing the work of God. The righteous work of God. And and beloved, that's not like, oh, I'm going to, it's not just say, I'm going to go do the work of God, meaning I'm going to go fly across the world and I'm going to go tell people about Christ. That's part of it. The work of God, though, begins right in your home. Hello. That's a good place for the work of God to start. How about right in your heart? How about in your own life? Okay. Now, now we can read the text. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to read all the way through 1 through 14, and we're going to probably do that every time because it's a unit. It's a good unit. It's a section. And there's a a break. It's still part of it in 15, and he's not changed his subject. He's just kind of readdressing. He's addressing something. We'll get to that. But 1 through 14, treat it as just a unit together. So let's read it. Watch this. It's amazing. What shall we say then? Verse 1. we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So what we're going to do, this outline is really simple. It's just kind of an outline designed for you to kind of follow along through the text. We're going to begin to examine, barely, Paul's important question. There's a question, then there's an explanation that follows that question, then there's some exhortation. He's going to tell us to do some things based on what he has said, and we're going to do all that so at the end we might truly understand the the real foundation for our sanctification and so that we might experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. Hey, do you want to experience ever increasing victory over sin in your lives? Yes. If you said no or you lied about saying yes, that's not good. Okay, let me start there. Uh, but you need to check yourself. You need to seriously check yourself. If you if there's no desire, if there's no desire for you to break free from sin, some's not right. Now, we haven't talked about how to break free from sin. We haven't talked talked about all those things. I'm just saying there's not even the desire there. Then you need to talk to me after the service so I can tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and how to be saved. Now, the question I want us to focus on is actually at the end of verse 2. Okay? How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the question that we're going to focus on in the outline. This is, listen, a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question. What's that? A question that's used to make a point. It's a question that kind of assumes an answer already, and it's designed to make a point. It's not a question that's asked to gain information. Okay, like, where is the dog? It's because I don't know where the dog is. It's not that type of question. And the purpose of the question is to demonstrate, listen, the absurdity, the irrationality, the ridiculousness, of the idea or suggestion that Christians should continue in sin so that God's grace may abound or increase more and more. But wait a minute. Where might we find such a crazy idea like that? Where would we find that? We find it in verse 1. And Paul's actually the one who brings up this ludicrous concept for his readers to consider. Okay, so... I'm just trying to show you how this works out. Go back to verse 1. We're going to focus on the question in verse 2, but why is Paul asking that question? Because of what he said in verse 1. Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now listen, Paul, he's not throwing out this question because, hey, you know, he's bored and he's like, hey, try this out. Let's see what happens. I'm going to ask this fun one. He's not doing that. And he's, he's not doing it because he doesn't He wants his readers answer, like, "Uh, let me see what you think about this. He's not doing that. As we've seen before in Romans, he puts forth questions, okay? We've seen this as we move through the book, right? He brings these questions up, and then he answers them immediately, why? To further clarify his teachings concerning the gospel, He wants to clarify. He wants to make them clear. He wants to make sure there's no misunderstanding about something he has just recently said. So he'll ask a question, and then he answers it. This is how he he deals with it. It's also possible, beloved, it's also possible that some of these questions or things that he asks are actually questions or concerns or objections that he has already heard when he presented the gospel in other places. In other words, real questions that others may have asked when he was presenting the gospel to them. And so because he knows they may get the same question, he brings it up and answers it for them so they know how to answer it. And or it could be he's thinking they may have this question in their mind based on what I just said, so I want to address it, right? I do that, I try. I try to, uh, what's the word? And thank you, anticipate. Anticipate what you guys might be thinking based on what I'm saying, Like, wow, he's incredible. (laughs) I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, those kind of things. And so it's one or the other and in between. So I, okay, so they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I try to like bring up questions that might be in your mind and answer them. I'll do that. Paul does. He's a master at it. I'm not great at it. He's a master. So let's, let's look back. What has he just said that might cause him now to ask this question? Bring it up so that he can answer it. What is it? It's what we just finished last week. Chapter 5, let your eyes just roll back. Verse 20 and 21. There Paul says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Remember this whole section about Adam and Christ. And he's talking about Adam and his trespass. So the law came in to increase it, to make it worse. But where sin increased, here we go, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, no matter what happens to you in your life and you might move from here or you stop liking me and you go somewhere else, find a church that preaches through the Bible verse by verse because this is so important. It's really the only way to truly understand What's being communicated to you? When Paul wrote, he didn't write verses, individual verses, and send them out in little text, you know? That's how a lot of preaching happens, like here you go, or little postcards of verses. He wrote a letter. It falls into context. It's connected to stuff in and around it. I I just want to say that, okay? So be in a church that preaches through the Word of God. Very important. I hope you stay here, by the way, but You never know what will happen. So we talked about this last week, but I explained then that sin, this passage, was increased when the law came in. When God gave it to the nation of Israel, and consequently, this idea of increasing, so was the guilt and condemnation of every sinner who came into contact with the law. How's that? Because like Adam, they too, when the law came in, became guilty of willful disobedience. They now knew the commands of God, but they still failed to uphold them. Okay, So on one level, you just have sin, but now you have a transgression. It's even worse before God because before maybe it was just sin, but you didn't know any better. Now you know better and you still do it. So the law came in to actually increase the trespass, make it even worse. And so when we went through this section, I asked why would God then bring in his law? Why would he do that? Is it because he delights in seeing people's condemnation increase? Do you remember this from last week, those of you who were here? Is that what it was? God's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get them good. Watch this. I'm going to lay down my law. I know they're messed up and unrighteous, and they're, gonna, they're not going to be able to uphold it. And all that's going to do is just bring greater condemnation. <laughs> is that it? Is that the God we serve? I don't think so, beloved. Not at all. No, he brought it in because it led to an even greater display of his amazing grace. That's the idea that Paul's communicating. Hey, the law comes in, increases trespass. No worry. Grace comes in and overflows. It super abounds. Where sin increased, grace increased ever more. It abounded. Verse 20. So God brought in his law to magnify his grace. You wanna, I'm going to show you how powerful my grace is. To overcome anything and everything that stands in the way of making my people right before me. It overflowed to the great glory of God. So, here's the idea now. Here's the idea that one could draw from what Paul has just said. Now, is that true? That where sin increased, grace abounded all the more? It must be true. That's what the Word of God says, right? So we're not going to back away from that. But here's an idea that someone might take from that. Okay, if God wants to put his grace on display, if he really wants to show off his amazing grace, if that's what he's doing, if that's his purpose in all this, then hey, shouldn't we continue in sin so that his grace may continue to abound? Why not? Come on. Come on. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that make God look even more glorious? Okay. Since the more we send it up, the more of his grace he gets to exhibit or reveal, wow, as he pours it out on us through Christ to maintain our justification. That's the idea. That's the idea that Paul has to now address. Now listen, while this idea is not entirely illogical, it's not entirely illogical. It does reflect an incomplete or distorted understanding of the gospel. By the way, throughout history, that exact idea or some version of it has been taught by some to justify their godless and sinful lifestyles. It has been. That's exactly what they have said. And listen, even Christians can fall into this kind of thinking and error to some degree. It might look something like this. You sin, and instead of repenting of your sin, instead of repenting of your sin, because that's what the Christian life is. It's a lifestyle of repentance, turning from sin, turning to righteousness through the power of the Spirit that resides within you. But instead of doing that, you don't. You don't turn from it. You don't turn to righteousness. Rather, you continue in it. You do it again. And you convince yourself it's okay. And you keep doing it because, hey, God forgives. And you think to yourself, maybe not exactly, but what you're really saying is, hey, isn't that what grace is for? You see? That's dangerous. That's dangerous, beloved. Do you remember what I said about sin? It's not your friend. It's your enemy. It wants to destroy you. God's saving grace does more than justify. I'm going to keep saying that. It does more than justify. It also is given to sanctify. It not only forgives sins; it also works to deliver his people from sinning. You see why this is so important? For the church... I mean, I think many people are turned off by the church because this is lacking in the church. In other words, they look at the church and they go, I don't see much difference between them and me. They're just as messed up. Their marriage is a mess. They curse. They get angry and blow up. They do all the things I do. Why do I want that? So how does Paul answer this question he raises in verse 1 of Romans 6? He says this. Wow, we're out of time. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, give me a few more minutes, by no means, by no means, right? How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is Paul's first response to that question that he brought up based on what he just said at the end of chapter 5, right? By no means, okay? It, it, it's also translated in other Bible passages, may it never be, or certainly not, or not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's the strongest way to say no. Okay? In the Greek. The point is, the idea is absolutely unthinkable. That's the idea. This is unthinkable. It should be utterly rejected. Continue in sin that grace may abound? That's outrageous. That's the point, okay? By no means. The old King James actually put there, God forbid. The word God's not there, but they were just trying to communicate the, the weight of the phrase. God forbid. Like, are you? That's crazy. God forbid it. And then Paul asked another question, okay? And this question now is to drive home his point. That's the purpose of the question. He just said, absolutely not. And now he asked this question. And it lays the, the groundwork for everything that follows now. Verse 3, all the way to the end of verse 14. He's gonna, he's gonna, after he asked this question in verse 3, he's gonna begin to explain it more. He's gonna be able to give us detail about it, okay? And when we get to verse 11, based on it, he's going to begin to exhort us. So you have question, explanation, exhortation. That's all simple outline just to kind of follow along. So after he makes, he says, by no means, he asks this question. Here it is. Look in your Bibles. What does it say? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Huh? You know, circle it. Write it on a postcard. Stick it in front of your face. Meditate on this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The we, by the way, are Christians. Those who have been justified. Not just we generally. We. Us. Who have been saved. Those who have been redeemed through faith in Christ. Those who through Christ's death have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. How then... Can we still live in it? So what is Paul's point in putting forth this question? It's to prove the idea that, that we should continue in sin that grace may abound must be utterly rejected. That's the point. It's the connected. He's saying, I'm going to prove to you this is crazy. Why? Because of this amazing truth, Christians died to sin. Now listen, we're going to come back to this. Don't You've got to be here. Uh, next week i'm not anticipating you won't but don't i don't if you're sick we'll put a spot in the back for you where you can sit with other sickies please be here Um, because this is so critical because this drives the rest of the passage i just want you to notice something now it's past tense they died to sin something happened and it happened in the past it's already happened he does not say christians are dying to sin He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say that sin is dead. We'll come back to that. He doesn't say that. I wish that was true, because then I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. No, he says something. He says we died to sin. And like I said, we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But right now, I want to tell you that based on this truth, this is the idea. It is inconceivable that we would continue in sin or live in a constant state of of sin or sinfulness that grace may abound. It's inconceivable. The person who would think or suggest such things has a flawed or incomplete understanding of the gospel of God's saving grace, and most importantly, they do not fully understand, listen, what has truly happened to them as a result of their salvation, as a result of them being united with Christ in his death. We're going to get to that. They don't understand it. They must not. Otherwise, they would never ask that kind of question. Let me remind you of something that is similar to what Paul is saying that the Apostle John said. Remember, we were in this book, I don't even know, a long time ago, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. This is what the Apostle John said. Another uh, disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower, an authorized representative of Christ. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Wow. For the devil has been sin... It doesn't say whoever just sins, okay? Because then we're all of the devil, I guess. It says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And listen, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. You... Okay. That verse, that sentence lands between verse 8 and verse 9. Context. People go, oh, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Yes! Yes! Well, what's the context? He came to wipe sin out. Not just release us from its penalty, but release us from its power. Take us from its presence. Then he says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You see any exceptions there? Hey, is the Christian born of God? So let me say it this way. No Christian makes a practice of sinning. Why would you say that? Because God's seed abides in him. The divine nature is there now through the Holy Spirit. He can't keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. There's, some, there's something that's changed about them. This used to be just common preaching, okay? I mean, this was the message. But it's got so watered down, so mushy-wushy. All people want to hear about is, hey, tell me about the gospel that'll give me a nice big house. That distorted, false gospel. Tell me about that one. Tell me about the gospel that doesn't condemn me, just makes me feel wonderful and sweet. (laughs) I I don't know what gospel you're talking about. This is another gospel. Or tell me about the gospel that allows me to take pride in myself, how wonderful I am. that's That's not the true gospel. It attracts a lot of people. I'm just frustrated, but also hopeful. I'm hopeful. Listen carefully. Listen to me, because I don't want you to walk out and go, wait a minute, these are heavy. Neither John or Paul are saying that Christians don't sin, neither one, or that they don't struggle with sin. He's not saying that. They most certainly do. Huh? Any amens? Okay, I'm with the right crowd. These apostles both acknowledge that in their writings, but what both are saying, listen, is it is not possible for the Christian, because of what has happened to them as a result of their salvation, to continue in a life dominated by sin. They can't. They can't. The Christian at times, let me say this, hey, let's be real, okay? The Christian at times may live in a way that is inconsistent with who they are. Did you hear what I just said? They they may live in a way that is inconsistent with who they are in Christ. But they will not, they cannot remain in that condition. That's the message. And the very foundation for what I just said, for their sanctification, for them becoming more and more free from sin and like Christ, you know where it's found? Right here in this question in verse 2. And we're done. We're out of time. On purpose. On purpose. Because now you're ready. Now you're ready to step into that question with me. I think I've laid enough groundwork. I think. I'll probably bring more next week. but And I have a lot more to share concerning this. And I also want to say this because we're out of time. You might have questions about something I've just said or maybe the text itself. Would you do me a favor? Would you hold those? Don't let them go. Don't forget them. They're probably important. They're certainly important. You have them. Wait to see if I answer them, okay, as we move through the text. I'm also gonna ask you to do this. Would you do a favor for me, beloved? Would you do yourself a favor? No? Okay, excellent. How about over here? Do yourself a favor. Read and reread verses 1 through 14 this week. By reread, I don't want to be legalistic about it. Read it five times or it doesn't count. Read and reread verses 1 through 14 this week. That's all I'm asking, okay? Even if you have questions, just read and reread this section and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand it as we go through it. And most importantly, ask Him, ask Him to help you believe it. Because that's going to be key to your sanctification as well as to mine. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gift of your word. What a treasure. What an absolute blessing. Father, we as your people, may we adore it. May we honor it by reading it. Studying it, wrestling with it when it's difficult, not just saying, oh, that's too hard, but wrestling with it, showing our dependence on you to help us get it by praying and asking the Holy Spirit that you've placed inside each and every one of us to help us work through it, to come under it, to obey it, to believe it, to trust in it. Father, I thank you for it. It is powerful. It is what will change us. It is what will transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. It is what will revolutionize our lives. So Father, I pray that this coming week we will just take a moment to sit down and really focus on this section of Scripture. Trusting that it can work absolute wonders in our life for our good and most importantly, for your glory. It is in Jesus' awesome name we pray. Amen.